You can keep Historian's Podcast on the Internet by donating to our fund campaign. Click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Barker-Schwartz, and I'm the director and violinist of Musicians of Malwick. And today we're going to be discussing the 100th anniversary of WGY and its music, a violinist named Edward Rice and his connection locally and his programming on WGY, which was so important during those first decades of broadcasting when the station was really at the cutting edge of technology and the caliber of the music being played locally was of such high quality with not only Mr. Rice and his professional string quartet that performed from the very first broadcast uh, for more than two, two decades afterwards, but also uh, describing some of the other concert music with the GE Concert Orchestra that was broadcasting right from the corner of State and Erie Boulevard in downtown Schenectady from a beautiful theater. And we'll be describing the repertory and talking about how it interfaced with some of the other programming on WGY. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. WGY Radio in Schenectady, New York, observed its 100th birthday on February 20th of 2022. The first WGY broadcast took place at 7.47 p.m. on Tuesday, uh, February 20th of 1922, and featured a violin solo by Edward Rice called Romance. Years later, or years after that, Ed Rice talked about that moment of history with WGY announcer Earl Pudney. It wasn't very pleasant, as I remember. It was was kind of dullish. And I had uh, the the heavy cloth hanging down completely from from the ceiling down. Why was that? Well, uh, there were certain uh, certain vibrations uh, in that room didn't, uh, weren't uh, ideal for uh, broadcasting as it was for beginning, evidently, because we were subdued quite a lot because of these curtains. They were deadening it. Deadening it, that's right. a musician like the live sound. I know, it was, uh, well, I didn't think I did very well that evening, but they said it was all right, and I guess uh, they knew. Ed Rice spoke with Earl Pudney. Excitement came afterwards because uh, as, as a, a violinist, I, I had a job to do, and I got in there and did it the best I knew how, and then all of a sudden I realized that this was for outside the building where I happened to be playing as well as for those on the inside, and the repercussion probably came later when I talked to my dad. He said, you came over fine. The live music for the WGY anniversary broadcast this year was performed by the musicians of Malwick, whose founder and violinist Anne-Marie Barker-Schwartz joins us. WGY announcer Earl Pudney, a musician himself, uh, in this soundbite we just uh, aired, uh, seemed shocked that the station deadened the sound of the Ed Rice violin solo. What what did you think hearing that uh, violin that was recorded so many years ago? I was actually quite impressed with his quality as a player. He was obviously a first-rate violinist, and... I was also surprised at the selection 
that he used to open the broadcast, you know, as I was researching what was played on that first broadcast and in the first decade, uh, all it said was Romance by Wieniawski. And I thought, that could be anything. And I was having a very hard time trying to figure out where to go with that, trying to track down the actual piece. And then I listened to this interview, and uh, I knew immediately it was the second movement of the second violin concerto. And I thought that was a surprising selection because it, it normally would be played with violin and orchestra, but yet the beauty of the piece was the perfect choice to open open that first broadcast and would make it very memorable for its listeners. Was it just his violin or did he have help? I mean, were there other, uh, other instruments playing? He had help. So for that first broadcast, I'm assuming, though we don't have an archival recording of the very first broadcast, but I would assume that he played with piano. Based on the archives I examined, and there are fabulous archives at MySci in Schenectady, there are pictures always of a, pian- a pianist, and they had a lovely full-size you know, grand piano in the recording studio. And he often had string quartet, too. He had formed his own professional string quartet, and so they played very, very frequently on on the station during the first couple of decades. And they were also playing real music. And what I mean by real music is that they weren't playing, like, Irish songs um, or simple things. They were playing Beethoven string quartet movements and Schubert string quartet movements, which is a testament, actually, to what the station believed was the desire of the listening audience and, and sort of it's a it's a great snapshot into American life at the time and, and sort of the sophistication and culture of the listeners. What connection do you have, or do you have one, with, uh, with Ed Rice? So this is, <laughs> this is a long story of serendipity. Um, I sometimes go down to coach with a violinist in New York City, and he's an avid reader, and he loves to collect uh, out-of-print books. And last summer, he gave me a self-published book by a man named Edwin Rice. And Edwin Rice was a lawyer who was an avid amateur musician, and I do mean avid. He lived for chamber music and classical music in general. And he was a very successful lawyer, but he moved in these elite musical circles in New York City. And as I was reading his book, um, he talked about that he had eight children, most of them sons, by the way, and that mm-hmm. he had made them all, you know, also amateur, you know, but very fine musicians, and they were all very passionate about music. And as I was reading this, I started thinking about a Mr. Rice that I had known when I was in high school. I went to Niskiona, and some of my colleagues took with Mr. Rice. And so I thought, I'll just, I'll just Google him and say Edward Rice Schenectady and see what I come up with. And so I did that, and this like spate of newspaper articles and references to Edward Rice, violinist, came up, and of course the the first one was the WGY first broadcast, and there he is. 
And uh-huh. it went from there. You find them everywhere. And um, and talking to some other people as I was researching this project, I'm pretty sure he was also the first concertmaster of the Albany Symphony, which was formed in the 1930s. So this guy was a fine violinist. And the elderly gentleman that I remember from my high school days was still a fine violinist. He was probably in his late 80s by that point, but still obviously very, very involved in music and and you know the musical life in this area. Hmm. And so Edward Rice was one of the sons of Edwin Rice. Is that can we say that? I could that? never put that together. I know that he had a son named Edward Rice, but I can't get enough information. I I couldn't trace it back. So I can't say that for certain. And and talking with Chris Hunter, who's the archivist at my side, and a font of knowledge about WGY's early days and, and GE. He couldn't say that either, so we don't really know, and I suppose there would be some way for me to do more detailed research on that, but it's, it's just this book, this, this self-published book by this Edwin Rice led me to Edward Rice and WGY, which is just sort of an, you know, a strange journey of of good fortune. <laughs> but it is safe to say that when you were a young violinist, um, or younger than you are now, um, it, Edward Rice was still alive, and, and he was teaching some of your colleagues the violin? Yes, absolutely, as well as the one of the announcers from WGY, apparently Mr. Rice, um, also taught at a school in Colony, and so Mike Patrick was, um, I think, a middle school student then, and Mr. Rice was his string instructor. Yes, I I heard that story on the broadcast that you folks did, and of course, uh, I never miss an opportunity to put in a plug for Mike Patrick. I mean, he really um, spearheaded the WGY end of this uh, celebration of the station's 100th anniversary, and it just seemed to in a sense, come out of nowhere. But I've found all these other connections that uh, Mike has had with uh, WGY and uh, his uh, love of of radio and, and old radio and, and, as I tell him, old radio people. I mean, Mike, he's a, a regular um, guest at this uh, luncheon we have every so often for old radio people like myself. And um, Mike was, has always been just very fascinated uh, by us and uh, interested in how we're so much like, in a way, uh, somebody who's more modern, uh, like Mike Patrick. But anyway, um, if people want to hear the WGY uh, anniversary uh, program, or the one that has the music in it, which uh, was done from the Kenmore Hotel or the former Kenmore Hotel. Uh, it's right now, and I keep my fingers crossed, it's it's online, isn't it, not at WGY.com? It is online, and because of the importance of the event, and I do think, I, I can't stress enough that how impressed I was with the type of programming that WGY was presenting musically back in the first three decades. And so we had the our event on Sunday filmed by Chromoscope, who is an outstanding uh, Albany-based film company. And we will be putting that together so it will be a permanent archive of the celebration. And we picked the Kenmore Ballroom because in the 1920s, 
WGY was at the cutting edge of radio technology, as you probably well know. And they, you know, after those first initial broadcasts from the GE campus in downtown Schenectady, they started setting up remote broadcasting sites throughout the capital region, from Union College and Schenectady and some of the local churches to the, you know, uh, higher-end hotels in Albany, like the Kenmore Ballroom and Hotel and uh, Ken Ike uh, Hotel and the DeWitt Clinton, and they were regularly broadcasting the dance bands from there. And Kenmore Ballroom was one of their sites from, I think, they started doing remote broadcasts maybe in 1923, so their second year. And these GY broadcasts were so important locally to attracting national acts, so people like Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and later Frank Sinatra came to play in these ballrooms because they knew they were going to be broadcast on WGY. So taking the program there just seemed the perfect the perfect site for us. At the anniversary show, which was February 20th of 2022, did the you and the musicians of Malwick play the romance, the one that you found by researching the what it was that Ed Rice had played? I absolutely did. It was the first thing I played after Mike Patrick introduced us. And who was performing with you as the musicians of Malwick that night? So we're what's called a flexible size ensemble, and we kind of let the repertory determine what our configuration is going to be. So I had joining us Max Kaplan on piano, who's an outstanding local pianist and composer. And then I had baritone Charles Eaton. And the reason I picked Charles, aside from the fact that he's a terrific baritone and he sang with Glimmerglass Opera and he's on his way right now to sing with Minnesota Opera, is that the first director of WGY was a man named Colin Hager. And Colin Hager, you probably know this too, but was a local guy who grew up in Albany primarily, sang with the Men and Boys Choir at the Cathedral of All Saints, which is still in existence today. It's one of the premier Men and Boys Choir. He studied with a Metropolitan Opera coach. He was a baritone himself. He had a really fine voice, and I've, I've heard it. I've heard some of these old recordings with him singing, and he was the real deal. So having a baritone seemed just the perfect, mm-hmm. perfect addition to the musical program. And I, took a, I spent some time working in the archives with Chris Hunter, going through the repertory that Colin Hager sang, also, some of Colin Hager's personal music library was donated to my side. So I actually pulled from Colin Hager's library things that he sang in the 1920s, and that's what we had Charles sing on. Which So it wasn't even just that we knew these songs were performed on WGY. It was actually with his music. Wow. And I, back in the early 1980s, I went to work at WGY in 1980. We would still have, or the station would still have Colin Hager, who's still alive, uh, come by the nighttime talk show, maybe not every year, but every kind of five-year anniversary, like maybe 1982, he came to uh, WGY, and I interviewed him, I, and I got to interview him two or three times. And but I, I never really 
um, looked into it as you did and Chris Hunter has. I didn't uh, realize that he had been a, a singer and so forth. The one thing I, my little story about Colin always was that, you know, I'm, you know, decidedly old school now. He was old school then. In other words, you could, but it was hard to interview him because he didn't, I don't think he liked it. And what he did was when he'd come to um, the contact talk show, which is what we called it, he would have a script. You know, I would say, oh, Mr. Hager, tell us about WGY. And he'd be off and running for like five or ten minutes, but reading reading his script. And the other thing that I think I heard uh, from, was it Chris Hunter from um, the Meisheim Museum that I never, two things, I really, that I never thought of. The Colin Hager, you mentioned his musical background, but he and the early announcers at WGY, did they have something, they had something to do, I believe, with um, what we call now SUNY Albany. And then it was the State Teachers College at Albany. Did he? Yes. So he attended the State Teachers College, and I think that some of the original troupe of actors for the WGY players were drawn from his friends and colleagues at the State Teachers College. And so that was part of that initial you know, group of both theater and music that was happening on the station. And, you know, you have to give him credit for having this kind of artistic vision, although I'm not sure that he would have called it an artistic vision, but that's exactly what it was. And, and we use this word today, we bandy it around a lot, but curate. And yeah. he was curating the, the the content of WGY in a way that, from today's vantage point, if you go, you know, even if you look at, for example, public radio, they were presenting, WGY was presenting really high-quality musical programming um, that was really, you know, cutting edge in many ways. And one of the pieces that I selected to play, and I, I did it purposely, it, it wasn't on the first broadcast, but it was in the first decade, was a work by Jean Sibelius. And Sibelius, of course, is a Finnish composer, but he was still alive in, mm-hmm. in the 1920s. And so his music was new music. And we forget that. I mean, we look back from our perspective today and think, oh, they're playing old classical music. But the truth of the matter is a lot of the programming that was happening was by contemporary composers. And it's just it's fascinating to realize that WGY was really in in the foreground with with these broadcasts, and that Colin Hager and Mr. Rice and were, were selecting the repertory and giving people a really broad palette of both older things like Beethoven and Schubert, and and then this new contemporary music, which to us today doesn't sound contemporary, but it it was then. Mm-hmm. And another point that um, Chris Hunter of Maisai made in. Uh, some of his talks on WGY for this anniversary, which it never occurred to me, but uh, I thought it was a very uh, a good point uh, that WGY, I don't know if it was unique, but unlike some of the early radio stations, which were mainly engineering toys, if you will, uh, that were put on by, let's say, the uh, in the engineers uh, who were working on electricity and radio transmission and so forth. WGY from the get-go, 
was there to entertain people because it was run by the GE publicity department. And I think that's absolutely true. There, there are a number of, I think, really fascinating cultural revelations for me with all of this. And one of them is that GE, of course, which was the largest employer in Schenectady, if not beyond, um, had this community. I, I guess that's the best word to describe it. If One of my research tools were these GE Works newsletters or magazines that went out biweekly. And mm-hmm. the reason I bring this up is because they listed – they were every. I mean, obviously, their employees were getting these newsletters, and they included everything played on the station. So that's how I tracked down a lot of the repertory. Um, but so that was obviously so you could plan your listening. Um, and then they included like all this other information about GE life at the time. And so GE was more than just. An employee where people or employer where people went home at the end of the day and they were done with it. A lot of the the buildings down on the you know main GE campus and in, in downtown Schenectady, each building had its own band, and you mm-hmm. that's listed in there. And you could see that they held dances there, and they were so proud they had just developed like amplification with big speakers, and they they had pictures of people enjoying music, and it was being amplified into the room and so many of these things were just it's such a different culture today in the workplace than it was back then and so that was fascinating too and and gy was such a component of this um for example the wgy players who were really the first real radio drama players in the united states they w or ge would sponsor playwriting competitions for students that had a $500, you know, first place monetary award. And in 1920, in the 1920s, that's a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just find all of this fascinating that there was this focus on the radio content and sort of a comprehension on the part of GE, which is at that time sort of inseparable from WGY, um, on developing content and understanding, you know, the association with the community and developing, um, I guess you'd say loyalty, but it's, I, I don't mean for it to sound that way because that makes it sound so commercial, but it's this identity, this community identity with the station. And doing the remote broadcast also feeds into that, too. They were broadcasting from Union College with um, – uh, Tidmarsh, I can't think of his first name right now, but maybe Edgar Tidmarsh, who was the organist at the, mm-hmm. you know, at Union College. So they were broadcasting organ recitals from there and church services, even um, temple services from Albany. This is in the 1920s. I, I find this fascinating that there was this sort of understanding that you need to include the community and that develops identity and loyalty and a, a sense of a broader community than just the GE employees themselves. So it, it was all fascinating, and I think I think anybody who takes a look at those first decades of broadcasting will be surprised by the depth of it. Um, another thing that surprised me, when you think about it, it's obvious, but we don't think of it today, is that they didn't really have a library of pre-recorded material to draw upon. 
So the musicians sometimes would be playing at all these weird hours live, like at 11 o'clock at night or mm-hmm. 10 a.m. in the morning, and they were sort of on call. They this at Mr. Rice's string quartet was sort of like the house band, and they played all the time at all these different hours, and and actually had a pretty sizable repertory. So th- that was something that was sort of a revelation to me too. It's it's really a fascinating look at a very different time. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Uh, and for the 100th anniversary, WGY, I believe, commissioned a man named Ben McCauley to adapt the first play that was done on WGY, which I think aired August 3rd of 1922, a play called The Wolf. But uh, Ben McCauley came up with an adaptation called A Play of a Play in the Canadian uh, Woods, uh, featuring actors from Schenectady Light Opera, uh, and also, um, my friends, if you will, put in a plug for them. Uh, Chris Warren and uh, Larry Mossy were were in the cast. Well, this has really been fascinating talking with you, uh, Anne Marie Barker Schwartz. We still have a few minutes left. I wanted to leave a little time to talk about the musicians of Malwick. I really feel uh, ignorant here because I've I live in Glenville, and Malwick uh, is a park along the river, and um, that's where you get the name for the musicians of Malwick, or is that so, or why do you have the name uh, the musicians of Malwick? So in 1999, my husband and I bought a house called Malwick, which is right on Route 5 as you're going out of the village of Scotia, and it was built in 1712 by Carl Hansen Toll, who, despite the sound of his name and, you, and the Dutch origins of most of our area, he was Norwegian, had a very colorful past. He was a sailor who had come over from Norway and jumped off a ship outside off of the South American coast and somehow worked his way up here and lived in caves initially in the Mohawk River, you know, hill area. But he built his house, and he was a very smart, savvy businessman and and became sort of a leader in the community. And then the Toll family continued on for generations, and one of the occupants of this house was John Calvin Toll, who was very involved with Union College, and they still have a John Calvin Toll Day in the fall for community uh, volunteering. Um, So when we bought this house, I had wanted to start chamber music, and I kept thinking about the origins of the house and its early date and, and how in 1712, Handel was still alive, and uh, Bach was still alive, um, and the amazing things that were probably heard in this house, like I'm sure you could hear the cannons going off probably up in Mm. Saratoga (laughs) during the Revolutionary War, and so it just seemed the perfect name to go with Musicians of Malwick and the age of the house and to sort of the whole history, so that's how we got started, and Within our first year, we got a residency at the Schuyler Mansion in Albany, which is the 1760s home of General Philip Schuyler. Um, and he probably knew some of the tolls, <laughs> I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. So there was just a nice tie. And we're still in residence at the at the mansion, and we're also in residence at SUNY Schenectady. 
And we've done some really neat things, like when Norman Lear bought the last private copy of the Declaration of Independence back in 2001, we were invited down to play for the unveiling of the Declaration. And it was just a really ex- a special experience. And it actually ties into de- de- uh, to GE because Jeffrey Emmelt was the chair of the board of Home Depot then, and he was sponsoring this event. I want to thank Anne-Marie Barker-Schwartz, founder and violinist of the Musicians of Malwook, for uh, joining us. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Bob. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. You can keep Historian's Podcast on the Internet by donating to our fund campaign, Click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. Thanks to WGY for the audio, violinist Edward Rice, and announcer Earl Putney.